My name is Kasia Krzyczanowska and I am the editor of the Review of Democracy. And it's my pleasure today to welcome our, at our podcast, Becker Stegin, Assistant Professor at, of Iberian Studies at the Johns Hopkins University. Recently, he has written a book, the opera novel, Spain and the Politics of Literary Persuasion, published by Harvard University Press. And we will talk today about this book. So welcome, Becker. Thanks so much for having me. And let us begin with the main protagonist of your book, the Spanish novelists who penned opets to, opets to El Pais after the Franco regime has ceased to exist. How do we explain that these writers populated the opet columns in high numbers in El Pais, but this is not really the case for the renowned newspapers like the New York Times or Le Monde? So, so yes, yeah, so my book tells the story of five Spanish novelists um, who, during the, let's say, 1980s and 1990s, uh, populated the op-ed pages of, of El País. Um, these novelists are Javier Cercas, Javier Marías, Antonio Muñoz Molina, uh, Almudena Grandes, and Fernando Aramburu. And they all kind of, let's say, they're of a particular generation, but they all started write, writing op-eds at, at different points uh, in time. Like, so, for example, Javier Marías, who's maybe the the name that that most of your listeners might might know, uh, he began writing novels in, when he was a teenager. He began writing, he published his first novel, I believe, at age 19. And so he was a novelist well before he was an op-ed writer. But then there are other novelists, um, such as Antonio Muñoz Molina, uh, who's also been widely translated into English and other languages, who uh, began writing as a journalist and then kind of subsequently, uh, very quickly, but still subsequently became um, <clears throat> became a novelist. And so these these writers were populating the the op-ed pages of of the Spanish press at a time when, um, let's say, shortly after, sometimes during, but shortly after the transition to democracy. So Spain had a dictatorship, had a had a fascist dictatorship from 1939 until 1975, and I think we can. These dates, let's say, are, are are very kind of hardwired in people who know anything about Spanish politics, but I think they're actually kind of inexact. The Spanish Civil War began in 1936, and so in many parts of Spain, that Spanish Civil War, um, let's say the the the, the phalangists, the the fascists, um, uh, or the party, the let's say big tent far right, extreme far right uh, political movement that that launched a coup, a military coup d'état in July of 1936, uh, many of the places areas of Spain fell. To the fascists very quickly. And so for many, the dictatorship lasted from 1936 until the new Spanish constitution was, was founded in 1978. And even thereafter, I mean, I think that I would periodize the, the transition to democracy from around 1973 until 1982. And 1982 is a key moment. Uh, it's a key moment in the book, but it's a key moment in Spanish politics, because that's when you have the socialist party and the first kind of peaceful transition of power. Um, from uh, people who were, let's say, centrists, moderates, who were very closely um, affiliated with the Franco regime, uh, to a socialist party that was by and large excluded, um, was in exile uh, during that period. Anyway, this is a long run up to say that uh, Spain was in a, a state of political turmoil. And before the transition to democracy, uh, Franco held a very strong grip on the press. 
And so there were not there was no there was no freedom of the press under um, under in the Franco regime. And therefore, the kinds of op ed columns, the kinds of opinion journalism that were that was produced, that were written, were very kind of curtailed or very kind of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they just I mean, there was just there was no freedom of the press. So they were just very kind of strangled in what what they could say. There were there were very good op ed writers, but they were by and large, again, very limited in what they could say. And then all of a sudden you have a transition to democracy. You have Franco's death in 1975. Um, and then subsequent, subsequently you have immediately, I mean, just months after you have the founding of El País in, in May of 1976. And all of a sudden the floodgates were kind of opened upon Franco's death in terms of freedom of the press. And so you have lots of newspapers that were founded at this time. And these newspapers... Um, obviously didn't have or didn't want to rely on the kind of um, opinion writing talent that had been or much of the opinion writing talent that had been created during the Franco regime, because these were opinion writers who were by and large, right, right wing people who were affiliated with the who were very closely affiliated with the 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 censorship apparatus, right, they needed to get around the censorship apparatus. So they were not going to either by disposition or by uh, by control, we're not going to um, go against what what the censorship apparatus um, kind of said, um, and so you had an you had just a, a vacuum of opinion writers and opinion writing talent that you need to need to fill a bunch of op ed pages. Um, so El País was founded in 1976. Also Diario 16, Diario 16 or Daily 16, I guess you would translate it as, uh, which was another major newspaper, was also founded in 1976. And and again, these these newspapers needed to find writing talent. And so they looked to a couple of places. They looked to uh, obviously politicians, right? The new up and coming generation of politicians that was trying to make its mark on Spanish society. And then on the other hand, they looked to people who had writing talent to begin with. And where are you going to find that, right? If you're not going to find it in people who regularly write journalism because of the censorship in, in the journalism apparatus or in the kind of uh, Franco estate, then you turn to writers and you turn to poets, you turn to novelists, you turn to um, other kinds of creative writers. And so all of a sudden you have, uh, because of this vacuum that you need to fill, you have a certain set of people who is going to, or who came in to fill this vacuum uh, rather quickly. And so what's interesting is that in the early days of, of El País, you have novelists like Gabriel García Márquez, um, the, the Nobel Prize winner from Colombia, who, uh, who wrote uh, regularly for El País. You have novelists across Latin America who come to write for El País as well as novelists uh, in Spain. Uh, and so you have very distinct kind of populations populating the, the op-ed pages. And I don't want to overstate the case. I mean, this was, uh, novelists came to, um, let's say, populate, I think it was around 30% uh, of the op-ed, uh, or let's say op-ed columnist space. I can talk about that distinction uh, if you want in a moment. But so you, But it's still sizable. I mean, and it's certainly, let's say, outside the norm for what one might expect, um, given, let's say, Western democracies uh, across the world. Thank you. Thank you very much for this historical overview, because it leads me to my next point that I wanted to raise. Because when I was reading your introductory chapter that explained the history of open writing and the position of novelists in the world of political opinions, I had a feeling of missing something. 
One could argue that a similar process that you described in Spain occurred in the post-communist countries as well. The intellectuals there, to a large extent, maintained the high social position in a democratic society by open writing after the collapse of the communist regime. It was even more strengthened with the popularization of social media. So would you agree that Spain and post-communist countries share a similar background history on the position of open novelists? So, so I don't, honestly, I don't know very much about the history of post-communist societies. Um, but there's a, a a book that just came out um, uh, that it talks about Czech and American writers by a book by Brian Goodman called The Nonconformists um, that talks about how these writers were kind of uh, were intellectuals um, and treated as as much more than just uh, literary figures. Um, and so I do think that there's absolutely something to be said for for that. And what's interesting to me is that I think the reason why why you or many other people can see this similarity is precisely because op-ed writing was the currency of political opinion, right? In order to get a political opinion out there in the world, circulated in the world, the most effective way to do so was was op-ed. One, one of the most effective ways to do so was op-ed writing, right? You also had radio and television, but I would say at least in Spain, uh, and I imagine for many other uh, uh, countries, especially post post-communist ones, Many people still turn to the print media in order to find find their opinions and, and in order to, let's say, um, find opinions that were at least kind of, let's say, uh, um, uh, they had certain, let's say, controls of what one would say is quality controls, right? Uh, because in the news media, in, in let's say, um, the radio or in television, right, people would say random things that were not necessarily, <laughs> were not able to be fact-checked on the spot. But if someone prints an op-ed column, that goes through a number of hands before it ever sees the light of day. And I think people, readers especially, were aware of that. Um, and so I think that op-ed writing can certainly uh, have that ability to create out of someone who may not have a background in journalism or politics, create an intellectual out of out of that person just by virtue of of the circulation of op-eds. And so absolutely, I think there could there could be something there could be something there. Yeah, of course. And let us move to the crux of your book. So what is an open novel, actually? How does it relate to the different literary genres and their functions? You aptly stated in your book that readers often assume fiction is meant to be enduring rather than timely. It's very well put. So what kind of myths does an open novel challenge? And in what ways it is enriching to read opets and novels as complementary? Okay, so there there are a number of questions there. So an op-ed novel, in my view, the the case I try to make is 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 that an op-ed novel is a novel that clearly attempts to intervene in the public debate debates of its time. And so, how does it how does a novel clearly attempt to intervene in the public debates of its time? Well, in at least in the 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 sample of of novels that I've chosen, and I think this kind of holds true for for other uh, novels that might be called op-ed novels. Is that these novels blend narrative and non-fictional evidence uh, in order to make kind of political arguments through, let's say, one one could say, uh, persuasive techniques. And let me break that down a little bit, right? So, lots of the writers that I study, um, they have they take on literary genres that already have this kind of or have this potential or already have it built into them this kind of mix between fiction and non-fiction. 
So the clearest example of this is uh, Javier Cercas. And Javier Cercas is a writer who was born in Extremadura in the kind of mountain region of Spain, and then his family moved to uh, moved to Catalonia. And so he grew up as a Catalan who came, whose family came from outside of Catalonia, which is kind of a uh, particularly important to understand given his political persuasion. But anyways, the, the one literary genre that he took on, especially after his first novel, from his second novel or his second book onwards, was autofiction. And autofiction is a genre that just, I mean, by definition, blends fiction and nonfiction, right? It blends the kind of self-writing memoir, truth-telling of one's own psyche with uh, with this kind of fictional veneer that allows the, the writer to kind of play with what exactly is true, kind of winking at the audience, but not exactly telling the audience when what they're writing isn't actually memoir and when it is, right? But it all feels like memoir. And so that's that's one genre that I think has really worked well for um, for these writers, right? Because it allows them to kind of, let's say, lay claim to the legitimacy of writing, let's say, truth that can be fact-checked. But it also gives them the escape hatch of fiction where they can say, ah, but not, but it's this is still a novel, right? I'm writing truth. I can get the legitimacy of writing truth and people kind of feel as though they're reading kind of um, memoir or reading some kind of um, account of nonfiction. But at the same time, I don't always have to abide by the standards um, especially the fact-checking standards or the, um, let's say, yeah, fact-checking standards of, of, of nonfiction. Um, and there have been many scandals in the United States uh, with non-fictional memoirs that actually turned out to be more fictional than, than, they, than they let on, of course. And so, and so what I think that these, this embrace of certain literary genres, I mean, autofiction is one of them, the novel of ideas is another one, and then I identify a third one that I call literary populism that we'll talk about in a minute, um, what I identify in these genres is that they are genres or styles. I mean, I don't know how how hard I want to press the the idea that they're kind of consolidated genres, but they certainly are kind of clear literary styles. And so, what all of these different uh, styles bring to the table is this this ability to blend different forms of evidence and the capacity to allow writers to write persuasively. They don't often have to hew to just pure literary aestheticism, right? They can also write argumentatively. They can have they can take their characters and infuse those characters with political ideas uh, in ways that genre fiction or in ways that other form other genres uh, would not allow, uh, or would it would constrain more, let's say, more heavily than than these genres. And so, in some, so. An op-ed novel is a novel that attempts to persuade readers. It attempts to directly intervene in the issues of its day. And so one can tell the second part of that of that equation. One can identify um, the, just purely the themes, right? What are these novels about? And in many cases in the novels that I study, uh, they are about history. They're about Spanish history and about Spanish, especially Spanish political history, right? They're novels about the Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, uh, and the memory of the Spanish Civil War. There are also novels about the transition to democracy and the memory of the transition to democracy. One of the novels I study is about the the coup d'etat that happened in 1981, right at at the very end of the transition to democracy. One would say, um, and so these are these are novels that attempt to, um, let's say, in thematic terms, attempt to revise our historical understanding. And so in that sense, there, I mean, it's just very clear that these novels are invested in. Um, a certain political debate 
Um, and they are frequently published right around the times uh, when these debates are, are very wide range, are very kind of uh, raging in the Spanish uh, uh, public, right? So, for example, Javier Cercas wrote this novel about the 1981 coup d'etat uh, called The Anatomy of a Moment, a brilliant title. Um, and so what he does is he publishes that novel in 2009. And this is, he must have written it around 2007, 2008, when Spain was passing its first, uh, what's it called, the law of historical memory, right? Where people were remembering, were trying to kind of give value to uh, those who had suffered during the dictatorship and had not gotten their due during the transition to, to democracy. And he kind of sets this novel in the transition to democracy precisely in order to kind of correct that previous uh, what he thinks was a previous kind of misunderstanding of of that transition and what uh, led to uh, the pact of, of the so-called pact of silence that did not allow these war crimes committed under Franco to to be tried and to be investigated. And so anyway, so these novels really kind of take certain features um, of both nonfiction and fictional writing and kind of blend them um, together. And just to <laughs> sorry to go go a little bit long. Um, but you, one of the questions maybe readers would have is is why do they do this, right? Why, why blend these narrative and and non-fictional elements? What is the purpose of this, right? And the purpose, as I as I kind of alluded to, the purpose is on the one hand to kind of maybe make historically revisionist claims uh, without having to answer for them uh, fully as one would if one were a historian or a journalist in the non-fictional sense, because you can always hide behind the veneer of fiction. That's number one. But as you mentioned, another, another reason is because novels are just very long lasting as opposed to op-eds, which are extremely ephemeral, right? You read an op-ed, you forget about it the next day, right? There are very few op-eds that actually stay with you. And that's part of the genre. That's part of the purpose of the writing, right? And so novels can, can actually, let's say, produce those similar arguments that op-eds make, but actually have a longer uh, shelf life, much longer shelf life um, than op-eds. And the third point that I would make is that these novelists wrote novels because novels actually in Spain, and I would say in, in many parts of the world, circulate much wider, wide, yeah, or circulate much wider than, than op-eds do. And you would say, well, but I mean, an op-ed can be read by 10,000 people a day. But part of that staying power is that an op-ed will be read by people on that day, but will never be read again, right? Whereas a novel can accumulate readers over generations, over years, over generations. And so I think that is part of the 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 appeal um, for blending nonfiction and fiction for these, these writers. It's good that you mentioned this uh, readership, um, international readership, actually, because mm -hmm. none of the authors, it seems, uh, that you discuss in your in your book won major international prizes. Of course, Javier Marias was surely acclaimed internationally, translated into many languages, even mentioned among the candidates for the Nobel Prize. But still, he did not uh, won it. So, with it, uh, do you think that novelists, intellectuals, find it hard to be recognized beyond their country of origin? Perhaps the universal message is buried under the national history that is difficult to decipher for the international public. Yeah, so I think that um, it, it is true that uh, these Spanish novelists that I talk about are are somewhat kind of maybe provincial is, is perhaps too, uh, too strong of a term, but are very kind of focused on the nation. Um, and that has a lot to do with their, their intellectual uh, 
project. I mean, someone like Antonio Munoz Molina, for example, he won the Jerusalem Prize. And so he won prizes outside of the Spanish-speaking world. But it is true that very few of them, Javier Marias being the lone exception, um, has appealed so dramatically to to an audience beyond beyond Spain. And I think that, yes, it has to do with with their focus on Spanish history. And I think it has to do with with their focus on on Spanish history, with the debates that are going on about Spanish history in the public. Um, and it has to do with the, uh, let's say, uh, on the other hand, the lack of understanding of, of contemporary Spanish history uh, by the rest of the world. I mean, if you read um, newspapers and magazines, the one time that they'll talk about Spain is when it comes to, to the Spanish Civil War in the 20th century, let's say. And so the Spanish Civil War holds such a um, holds has captivated the imagine the world imagination so much, and for obvious reasons. I mean, there were the international brigades, right? There were many people who came in from different parts of the world to to help fight uh, against fascism. Um, and so I think that the hold the stranglehold of the Spanish Civil War on the international, um, let's say, imaginary has really not allowed for a space uh, for contemporary fiction writing uh, from people in Spain to reach that that wider audience. Um, it's different with a, with a younger generation, but I think that these novelists, these op-ed novels in particular, because they're so focused on the national debate, have become super important within Spain, but also have not kind of, let's say, gotten outside of Spain. I remember, so there were one of the novelists that I discuss, his name is Fernando Aramburu, and he, of the novelists that I talk about, he's the one who came latest to, let's say, uh, public intellectual fame in Spain. He wrote this novel in 2016 called Patria, uh, which is, I guess, it was translated as Homeland, which I think is a more or less appropriate title. Um, and that novel was translated into English. It became a huge bestseller. It sold over 1.2 million copies uh, in Spain. And, that, and, I, and I think that includes uh, its early translations, especially in German. But when it was translated into English, the New York Times published a, an early review of it and completely panned the novel. And it panned the novel, it seemed to me, not really for aesthetic reasons, but rather because it the, the writer there had no idea why people were making such a fuss about why there was this, this intractable conflict in the Basque country. So the novel is about the Basque country. It's about... Uh, it, has, it it features two families. One family is is the family of a victim of an ETA terrorist attack. The other family is the family of perhaps what we are we are led to believe is the perpetrator of that ETA terrorist attack. Um, that leads to the death of the father in one of the families. And so the New York Times was just the the re reviewer there did not know really what to do with this historical conflict of of ETA. And that's puzzling to me because of course. In the same paper, you have novelists in Ireland publishing about the Troubles and publishing about the RRA, and those novels are not treated with the same kind of quizzical uh, uh, puzzlement that that uh, this ETA conflict was. And so I think that there's just a a lack of, of of knowledge of what's going on in Spain and a lack of understanding of of its let's say historical significance, despite the fact that I, as an Iberian scholar, would say that there's quite a lot of historical significance and that there are many parallels with with situations like that we actually know of like the troubles in 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 Northern Ireland. Yeah. 
Do you ever encountered accounts of authors you described that admitted to regret international fame? That's a good question. I mean, the 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 novelists that I talk about, the the only ones that have reached some kind of international fame are Javier Marías, uh, Antonio Muñoz Molina, and Javier Cercas. And so these novelists um, are their novels are almost immediately translated into English. They do make the literary circuit in the United States and elsewhere. Um, Muñoz Molina, they all all three of them. Uh, well, Javier Marias, of course, passed away in 2022, but all three of them speak and spoke excellent English. I mean, Javier Marias, uh, his his father, Julian Marias, was a professor at Wellesley College and at other universities, he was a visiting professor at many universities in the United States. He was a philosopher. Um, Antonio Munoz Molina lives partly in New York. He was the director of the Instituto Cervantes in New York City. And Javier Cerca was, was a professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign for a couple of years. Um, and and has has come to the United States uh, quite often, and so I think part of the the provincialism might have to do with their linguistic abilities, not just the ability of their novels to be translated, but them to have a kind of public presence in the United States through their uh, appearances and through their writing. And I think that these three novelists um, actually did. Now, do they re do they regret? Uh, I don't think any of them regrets becoming. Um, a writer who is, let's say, internationally recognized. Um, they, some of them, uh, some of them, every once in a while, will issue regrets about becoming a a, a Spanish intellectual who is, let's say, has a certain notoriety. Um, but the way that I read that is, I read that as kind of part of their 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 op ed novel project, let's say, their their public intellectual project, which is to offer opinions that they kind of strongly believe through their fiction and non-fictional writing. All of these columnists, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but but all these writers were actually columnists. So they simultaneously wrote columns and novels at the at the same time. And that's part of the the kind of or that's the easy way to identify some of the blending is by reading op-eds and novels alongside one another. But so I think in Spain, what they're what they're doing when they express regret about becoming intellectuals in Spain is that they're they're expressing regret about having to, um, let's say, having to meet the legitimacy standards uh, for let's say rigorous fact checking and rigorous argumentation uh, that is that is expected of them in the Spanish public sphere. While at the same time wanting to kind of let's say issue opinions without they want to issue opinions without necessarily always meeting those rigorous standards because they think in a much more let's say artistic and creative way that doesn't necessarily have to meet all of those requirements in their literary writing right and so they express regret that maybe people don't understand what they're trying to do that people uh, often read them too literally that people uh, that people get frustrated because they they just misunderstand the genre. Of, of what they're trying to do. But I think that that's just an easy kind of excuse to be perfectly honest. I think that that's an easy excuse for not wanting to actually write the journalism that uh, they otherwise claim to be writing even when they are when they are writing fiction. And so I wanna go back to one of your earlier questions. You asked a great question of whether I think it's, let's say salient to read op-eds and novels alongside one another. And so I think that it's, it's I think that it's a very challenging thing to do because as as literary scholars, you, you're always taught to kind of separate the author out 
from the novel itself, right? Foucault taught us this back in the 1960s. Roland Barthes taught us this also back in the 1950s and 60s, right? With the death of the author debates. And so I think that that was a kind of, I think that that was a healthy turn in literary studies. But I also think that people took it too far, right? Novels are produced by people that have a kind of sociological characteristics to them, right? That live in a society that interact with other people, that interact with institutions that that have all of these kind of this social material that they use in order to inform their novels. And so sometimes novels aren't purely descriptive, right? They're not purely kind of narrative, right? They also want to act as, let's say, social actors in the world. Um, and I think that we've kind of missed that. And that's, that we've missed that, especially when it comes to uh, people who in their sociological characteristics are also treated as intellectuals, right? And so is it always a good idea to read an op a novelist's op-eds next to their novels? No, I don't I don't I don't think so, right? There are, there are a number of number of novelists who actually write op-ed columns, but whose op-ed columns don't really inform their novels. But if you're, let's say, um a contextualist about this and you you really want to kind of understand not only the novels themselves, but also um, the people behind them. I would say in many cases, it is, it is a good idea to read those two genres alongside one another if there is something there to be to be found. If you see that there's this blurring between uh, these two kind of, let's say, forms of of writing, right? Nonfiction on the one hand and fiction on the other. And so I would say that it's that really it's it's in general probably not a good idea. But it is a good idea if the sociological, let's say, uh, circumstances uh, uh, will it so, right? If you want to understand, uh, if there's something going on in the fiction, right, that you understand is a kind of blending of fiction and something else, then maybe you should look also elsewhere and kind of do this simultaneous reading, one thing alongside the other, to see if there's actually something there that is that is happening between those two distinct, otherwise distinct genres. Yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. But let me ask about good and bad examples of open novels, um, because I have the uh, conviction almost that you already have your types. It seems that you generally approve the or try to objectively write about authors who engage with autofiction, as you mentioned, and novel of ideas. But at the same time, you visibly disprove of literary populism, exemplified by the novel that you mentioned, Patria, by Fernando Aramburu. So why is it the case? So I, I would not say that I, <laughs> not say that I, that I'm, uh, let's say, uh, more critical of Fernando Aramburu than I am of the, of the other, of the other novelists. But let me, let me explain what I mean by, by literary populism, which is this term that comes up in, in the end of the, at the end of the book and this kind of literary style that I really want to, to make an argument that exists. I want to say that it actually exists. And so literary populism is essentially, in the case of Fernando Aramburu, when he is trying, as many populists do, he tries to present himself as above left versus right, right? I am above politics. I am above this kind of left versus right distinction. Um, and in the case of Fernando Aramburu, the way that he does that is he he's, has these two, he basically sketches out, a, sketches out a dichotomy for you. He says, here's the left-wing family and here's the right-wing family. And I'm going to spend equal time on both of these families, equal time in terms of page length, literally how much time you spend reading about each of the families is the same. And so therefore, I'm not going to take sides. I'm going to be above the fray and I'm going to prove it to you by having a very kind of balanced 
account of these of these uh, two families. But what happens when you read the novel is that one of the families is very kind of it's is very fully described is kind of very uh, it feels like lived people like real actual people that you can that you can empathize with that you can laugh with that you can sympathize with etc etc whereas the other family is very flat they're what a very good scholar of comparative literature calls flat protagonists and so they're protagonists they're people in novels they're that that takes center stage but they're actually not developed as characters and so what's interesting about that is that you have this in, you have a balance at a very formal level between left and left wing versus versus right wing, but yet you have a, an extreme imbalance at the level of content, at the level of narration, right? Between who the author is invested in telling you about and who she or he is not invested in telling you about. And so it becomes very obvious where the sympathies of the author are. And so I find this as a kind of feature of, of many... Um, analyses of of populism, which is that the the scholar of populism will tell you um, that what populists want to do is they want to present themselves kind of as as beyond politics. But yet, if you look at their political program, if you look at their their history, if you look at all of these uh, specific features, it's clear that they are on one side of the populist um, uh, one side of populism or or the other, uh, left wing populism or or right wing populism. Okay. So that is my spiel on on literary populism, and I hope it's it's persuasive. Um, and so with um, Fernando Aramburu, so I think that maybe it was this was the first chapter that I wrote of the book. So perhaps it is a result of that first chapter not being as uh, as uh, let's say measured as the other chapters. Um, but I would say that the other chapters are also equally or similarly. Uh, harsh on their on their uh, protagonists on their on their writers, because in the case of, for example, the novel of ideas, so the novel of ideas, this nineteenth century novel that then gets revived, I would say, in the nineteenth century genre that then gets revived in the twenty first century, the novel of ideas by Almudena by Almudena Grandes, who is a writer that has, who has unfortunately not been translated uh, very much into English. Um, what she did is she essentially was very what one would call dogmatic in her political thinking and in the way that she expressed her political thinking uh, in her novels, right? Her novels were very just um, would kind of beat you over the head with her political agenda in a way that was extremely literary. And again, it's a, her novel, which is translated into English as The Frozen Heart, El Corazón Helado, is a beautiful novel. I mean, it's just very well, very extremely well written. It's very entertaining. It's long, but it keeps you going. That novel, when it comes to its political uh, program, it's just very obvious what it wants to do and, and any reader can kind of see through it. Um, and so I, I think I, I criticize Almudena Grandes very strongly for for that, um, let's say, simultaneous wanting to have her cake and eat it too, wanting to present a beautiful literary artifact, but yet also present her political view as kind of true within that literary artifact in a way that is, let's say, more maybe perhaps a little inartful, one would say. Um, and so, and the same thing goes for Javier Cercas. I mean, Javier Cercas, I think I... I take him to task for uh, accruing all of this legitimacy through his historical fiction, his historical autofiction. Um, but yet, when it comes to debates in the public sphere, when he steps out of the of the of the fictional realm and he tries to debate with historians, 
he actually comes up a little bit short. He doesn't really want to engage in these debates as fully as 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 let's say a journalist or a historian would with all of their kind of wealth of of um, citations and quotations and references. Um, and he does come. He he wants to kind of prove that he has done historical research, um, which he does. He does. He he has done historical research in spades, but he does not want to engage in let's say debates among historians uh, in a way that kind of he wants to use that legitimacy, but he doesn't always want to follow through on completely on those those debates and those arguments that he wants to make in public. Um, and so I would say that each of these genres, I, I mean, the, the book, to be perfectly fair, is is mostly a critical book. I mean, I celebrate the writing of these authors. I think the writing is fantastic. And I recommend I strongly recommend that that people reach out to uh, or people go to bookstores and and seek out these these novels. Um, even in their English translation, I think many of them hold up very well um, in terms of their aesthetic quality. But at the same time, I think that each of these writers has a has a very kind of clear agenda, clear public intellectual agenda behind their writing. And sometimes it comes through kind of more obviously, and sometimes it comes through uh, less obviously. But I think that we have, let's say, enough sophistication as to kind of separate out, right, the quality and the admiration for the writing, as well as maybe perhaps the more questionable aspects of uh, some of their political uh, argumentation. Personally, I was very surprised that I discovered a lot of Polish translations of the authors that you describe. So that's a very positive surprise. So let me ask you a question that will be probably an elaboration on what you already said, because you refer to a gripping metaphor devised by Walter Benjamin, by which he compares opinions to oil that lubricates social life. You then go beyond Benjamin's comparison and pose the question of legitimacy and agency. Which social actors are able to pour that oil? There are, of course, various answers, possi possible answers to this problem, but let us focus on the Spanish intellectuals. In what ways they claimed their right to deliver political opinions? How did they manage to convince society to trust them with regard to politics? Because perhaps the novelist simply responded to social expectations that celebrity writers should answer the national political questions. Sure, wonderful. Let me let me just read a little bit. I'll read that metaphor because I think uh, I think it might be interesting for your audience. And so I write in the book. There's here's what I write in the book. I say, the first aphorism of Walter, Walter Benjamin's One Way Street ends with a comment on the role of opinion in modern society. Quote: Opinions, Benjamin writes, are to the monstrous apparatus of social life what oil is to machines. One would not stand in front of a turbine and pour oil all over it. Instead, only a little is applied to the hidden spindles and joints whose locations must be known in advance. Right, and so this metaphor, I think, is this was a wonderful metaphor when I when I came across it, um, because what he's saying is he's saying that with without opinions, without this whole opinion apparatus, without opinion journalism, without opinions, uh, important journalism in its many forms. Uh, through audio, televisual, written, etc., there's no lubricant to society. Society can't communicate with itself. It can't really function. It's kind of stuck, right? And you can see this. I mean, as 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 I'm sure you would you would you would probably say. I mean, you tell me what you think. But if you see this in authority in society societies under authoritarianism, so socially they are stuck. I mean, there's no kind of like 
obviously opinions circulate in in many kind of forms. They circulate underground, they circulate uh, covertly, etc. But the public society is stuck in a way, right? And so I think this metaphor is is very apt and especially apt for understanding a, a let's say post-authoritarian society like Spain was in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. And so the way that these, I've mentioned this a little bit before, but the way that these uh, these writers accrue this public intellectual legitimacy is is th through their novels is precisely by how they um, by the themes that they that they focus on right often political themes often historical themes but also they they frequently want to kind of um, in the novels themselves want to show and demonstrate all of the research it took for them to write those novels and what does that do that gives you a certain academic legitimacy or or opinion journalist or journalistic legitimacy right look at all of these books that i read look at all of these people that i talked to look at all of these um um let's say archives that i visited uh in order to produce this novel um this happens with antonio muñoz molina's novels he wrote a novel about uh james earl ray the person who the man who assassinated martin luther king jr um, and he went to he goes to great lengths in this novel from 2014 titled a fading like a fading shadow I believe is the translation into English and he goes through that that novel and he he or at the end of that novel but also in the middle of it he kind of he reveals all of these sources and so this is interesting because of course as as academics we just footnote right we quote and then there's a footnote and so it's very easy to tell through the apparatus of academic writing how those what those sources are where they're from and 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 how we cite them but of course how do you cite a source in a novel right that's you have to cite it in the page itself but yet if you're a literary writer you have to make it entertaining and literary right you can't just kind of plop a source in the novel and so these novelists come up with very creative ways to cite these sources within the novel um and to prove that legitimacy and say ah look at look at this kind of key fact that i knew or I've discovered only because I read so much archival material, only because I went to this kind of particular spot and can describe the landscape where this person was murdered, right, et cetera, et cetera, right? So these are tropes that are taken from, I would say, especially taken from uh, what's called in the United States, new journalism, mm -hmm. right? So this is Truman Capote in the 1950s and, or 1960s, right? Um, and this is a kind of form of journalism that comes comes about uh, that attempts to, let's say, narrativize nonfiction. And I think that lots of these novels take that take certain lessons from American new journalism to heart and new American new journalism kind of spread across across at least the Western uh, world. You find evidence of people trying to imitate it um, in France, in Spain, uh, in Germany uh, uh, and, of course, in the UK. And so. Um, and so I think that again, accruing legitimacy through novel writing is a kind of is an art in and of itself. And I think lots of these authors authors want to kind of prove and demonstrate demonstrate that research in order to have uh, that legitimacy that then they take in the public take to the public sphere, right? They take the legitimacy of proving how much research they've they've um, they've done in order to produce this novel, and then use that to back up what their opinions are. Uh, when they write their op-ed columns for El País and, and yeah. several other, other newspapers. So my last question with regard precisely um, this issue and ask what's your personal opinion on the novelist intellectuals that joined the debate on sensitive political matters like historical memory of Franco regime, but do not pursue 
pure academic or journalistic standards? So that's a great question. I think I tried to conclude with this at the at the very, very end of the book. I want to say that, yes, the book that I've written is a very critical book, and I, I kind of take these authors to task for, uh, let's say, various uh, mishaps and and uh, uh, let's say, I don't know, arguments that I think that don't hold up uh, to scrutiny very well and for, I don't know, making kind of ridiculous statements that they can't back up. That All of that is true. However, I do think that novelists have a place, have a role to play in the public sphere. I have come across many arguments, and these are some of the arguments that maybe inspired me to write this book, that say that that criticized a number of Spanish novelists, some of the ones that I have in this book, and say, well, look at how, let's say, how these these novelists just have, when they write about the economy in their the Spanish economy and their op-eds for El País, they just have no clue what they're talking about. And yes, in a technical sense, that's that's true. I mean, they have no clue. They make kind of very ex exaggerated arguments. But one could also imagine a world in which these novelists, despite not having, let's say, academic, rigorous academic training in economics can nonetheless opine uh, quite sophisticatedly about the Spanish economy. And so my problem when I or the problem that I had when I when I read these critiques of these novelists is that they would basically say like these novelists cannot these novelists are, are writing very poorly about the economy, about Spanish politics. They don't take political science research into account. They don't take uh, history into account, etc. And therefore, they should not write for the public sphere. And I think that that last jump is my biggest problem. I think that novelists should write for the public sphere because what would happen if you only have people who are specialists writing about their own discipline in the public sphere? That's just academia. I mean, we already have that. <laughs> uh, now, does academia need to, let's say, does academia need to reach out to the public sphere? Obviously. I mean, I'm uh, my, th this book is written, yes, it's published by a, a university press, but I've tried to write it in a way that that kind of appeals to people who are well beyond my field of ex expertise. And I think that everyone, in, especially in the humanities, but also in the social sciences, should should absolutely strive for that. There's a role that specialized language plays, and that's wonderful. But I think that um, I think that these novelists can play a part in describing things for a general audience, just like a scholar who does not just write for his or her narrow field of study and tries to write about that field of study uh, for a broader audience can can also write for that that broader audience, can bring the two um, together. Now, as scholars, we are kind of, um, let's say, we are trained in a certain field. I don't think academics, I, I don't think novelists need to be trained, but I do think that they need to be much more, let's say, invested and much more learned about their own, the, the fields that they want to examine in public. And so I can turn to a one very, an excellent example of this, who of a novelist who opines in public, um, yet whose opinions are very rigorous and are very, let's say, rigorous uh, in the technical sense, but also literary. Uh, in a way that I think appeals to a broad audience. So John Lanchester, who is a writer in the UK, he's a novelist. He often writes for the London Review of Books. He has he has wonderful, um, let's say, arguments, uh, thoughts about economics. And yet he's also a novelist who's written a novel called Capital. That is, a, I think it's called Capital, that was published uh, during the financial crisis of 2008 and describes the social situation, the kind of 
social arrangements that two th that the 2008 financial crisis kind of threw open into the air, threw kind of destroyed, kind of dismantled in a certain sense. And he he writes about that in this novel very lyrically and very kind of poetically, um, in a way that could not be replicated by someone who was just writing nonfiction. And so during his in his op-ed and his columns and his public writing, he writes about economics in, in one way, but in his novel, he writes about it in a slightly different way, but yet there's a similar kind of coherent project there, right? That doesn't attempt to blend the two in order to get some kind of cachet as a public intellectual, but just kind of exercises two different kind of sides of his mind in order to understand this kind of very big uh, contemporary problem. And so I do think that novelists can provide a kind of, not a generalist perspective, but can just kind of provide a very different perspective in the public sphere that is not, um, that is, that would not be accomplished just if we had academics writing about uh, their field of, of, of specialty in the public sphere. And one of the things that I would appreciate, for example, that I think novelists can do perhaps um, better than, than many other writers, right, is they can use the twin, um, the twin genres of of drama and comedy, yeah. right? There are certain situations where it's appropriate for things to be, for situations to be dramatized because they're not sufficiently understood uh, or their, their import is not sufficiently understood. Or there are also situations, the inverse of that, right? When we need to laugh a little bit, right? When we need to use comedy to understand uh, what's going on in the world, right? This is obviously in contemporary society, this has been taken up in the United States by people um, like uh, John Oliver, right, on and his newscasts, right, that are constantly kind of nonfiction, but they're cracking jokes all the time. They're using kind of uh, comedic tropes in order to get us to a deeper understanding of contemporary politics. And I think that novelists can absolutely help us do that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I also rather prefer not to live in only academic society. And on this note, we will end. So thank you very much, Becker. That was really great. Thank you so much. And I invite you to follow us on our social media and stay up for more content on Revdom. Thank you.